Well, I get the uh, projector going. I'm going to have Richard open us up in prayer, and we'll get started here in just a second. Dear Lord God, we just want to thank you, God, for this day, Lord, and giving him this, this opportunity, Lord, to come and hear your word, talk to us, Lord. We just ask you, God, to use Paul, Lord, to minister to us, God, and, and open our hearts and minds, Lord, to be ministered to. Lord, we love you and we thank you, and we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. So uh, last Sunday, we finished the prologue or the overture of the Gospel of John. Uh, that's where John you know, introduces themes that are going to be developed in the rest of the Gospel. And <clears throat> the, another thing that we've, we've talked about is the purpose that John wrote. I'm going to go ahead and just read the purpose, which comes towards the end of the Gospel. This is uh, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, you know, the signs that are written in the book, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John's purpose is to help us to believe more fully in who Jesus Christ is. We see you know, quite a bit in the opening, uh, uh, the opening 18 verses of John about God, or about Jesus Christ specifically. The, the verses focus very specifically on Jesus Christ, and they tell us a great deal about him. We would know a lot about Jesus Christ just from these 18 verses. You know, his pre-existence is, is stated. You know, we have one of the clearest uh, you know, statements of the Trinity when it describes Jesus Christ as being both distinct from God and equal with God at the same time. We're told that Jesus Christ is responsible for creation and that there's life and light in him and that he gives the right to become the children of God. We're also told about the incarnation, that he became flesh. He was God, became flesh, uh, dwelt among us. And finally, we're told that uh, he exegetes God. That would be kind of a very literal translation of one of the closing statements in the, the prologue. He makes God's known. Uh, he's God's you know, ultimate and final self-revelation to us. There's a really significant emphasis on creation. You can find all sorts of allusions to Genesis chapter 1 in the opening 18 verses of the Gospel of John. You know, God created light in Genesis 1. Jesus provides a dark world with true light. So Genesis 1 is just talking about physical light, presumably. In, in John 1, there's spiritual light. Uh, we're, we're able to you know, see God. We're able to see, see things truthfully because of the true light that Jesus provides. Um, you know, life is created in Genesis 1. Jesus gives true life um, in, in the prologue. You see themes about light and darkness. Uh, death and life, and these are both themes in the book. If you kind of see physical light, uh, light or physical darkness or uh, physical life and death, you, that John is kind of emphasizing in the story, you can kind of bet that he's kind of trying to draw your attention to the, uh, these themes. Um, and we'll, we'll be seeing that as we go through John. <clears throat> see, we're told that Jesus dwelt among us, and the word for dwelt is kind of interesting. It means he pitched his tent or Better, he tabernacled. The, the temple was God's presence, uh, or a picture of God's presence. God was present there, but it was a, a kind of a picture of God's presence with his people. Jesus is the reality that the temple points to. Uh, and that's what John is saying when he's saying that Jesus tabernacled among us. The last thing, if you go through the last uh, paragraph of the, uh, the prologue, is that John kind of subtly points to four different pieces of evidence that he's going to use uh, to 
to authenticate what he's telling us about Jesus Christ. Um, we we kind of rushed through this last week. I'll rush through it again since we're just reviewing it. But the first thing that he kind of draws our attention to is that there are witnesses to you know, uh, Jesus' ministry, and that would be the apostles. But there's another very important witness, and we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time today on this one, and that's John the Baptist. Um, next, grace and truth are revealed through Jesus Christ. Now, you know, the Old Testament is a revelation from God, and the, the Jews uh, you know, very <laughs> uh, um, thoroughly accepted that as an authentic revelation from God. Jesus Christ is a better revelation from God and should be even more uh, uh, self-apparently real if, if you simply examine who Jesus Christ is than the Old Testament scriptures are. It should be more straightforward to see that Jesus Christ is who he says that he is just by, by seeing who he is. Um, a weaker one that, that John does point to in the prologue is the testimony of experience. That is that people encounter Jesus Christ and they're changed. I, I don't think that's as strong a piece of evidence as, as the other three that John points to, but it does uh, hopefully lead us to investigate the claims of Jesus Christ more thoroughly. And finally, it points us to the testimony of Jesus. Jesus has uniquely seen God. In the Old Testament, the prophets had you know, quite a bit to say. Their, their message was accepted as valid, but they at best saw only glimpses of God. Jesus Christ has existed with God at his side through eternity. Jesus knows God you know, in a far, far better way than any of the, the others. And so Jesus' testimony about God is proof of who he is. <clears throat> so anyway, with that stated, we're going to start to look at uh, some of the testimony that John is going to bring to bear to, to show that Jesus is the Christ. In the rest of chapter 1, we're going to see two different testimonies. The first is going to be the testimony of John the Baptist, and the second is going to be the testimony of several of the disciples. Not, not all of them are going to show up here, but several of the disciples are going to meet Jesus, and they're going to uh, very quickly come to realize that Jesus Christ is who he claims to be. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and read 19 through 28. We're going to kind of look at this section together. <clears throat> and this is the testimony of John. When the, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, uh, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who uh, you do not know. And even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but... For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness, 
I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So, uh, the the section kind of moves to the, these two disciples who were disciples of John that are, are going to start following uh, Jesus, and that's what we're going to look at later today. But first, I'd like to look at the the section on, on John the Baptist. And we're going to look at this kind of somewhat uh, together. One of the first things just to kind of draw your attention to that we see in the passage is that John the Baptist attracted a fairly significant stir. Um, you know, crowds of people would go to see him. And we're told in the Gospels that John didn't perform miracles, so they weren't going to see miracles. They were going to hear teaching. And it's teaching that we would be told wouldn't be very popular today. It's teaching of repentance, you know, sin, judgment. Uh, you know, John's m- message was, a, a, was very clearly a message of repentance. Yes? Yes. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, they, they certainly were cousins. That's really clear in the synoptics. John doesn't deal with that, but there's nothing inconsistent with it. But um, you know, John the Baptist's parents were uh, priests and fairly prominent ones. They would have lived in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus you know, grew up in Nazareth, uh, which was a, a significant journey. It, presumably, the family went to Jerusalem for uh, important feasts. Some were told about one particular instance uh, in, in Luke where you, Jesus goes to the temple when he's 12 years old. Um, but it, it's possible that they never met each other. It's possible they might have met a, each other a few times growing up, but it, it's not really stated clearly. Um, <clears throat> anyway, John is out in the, the the wilderness, and you know, for for us, you know, we'd get in the car and spend a few hours driving to, to can I get from Jerusalem to where John was teaching? It isn't all that big a deal. In these times, you know, the delegation that were sent out by the religious leaders would have had to pack provisions. There weren't hotels uh, to stay in, certainly not in the wilderness. Uh, you. Know, they would have had to travel several days by, by, by foot or by camel or horse uh, to get there. This is a significant undertaking. So the fact that John is kind of drawing a delegation from the prominent religious leaders tells us the sort of attention that he was drawing. And I'd like to just kind of uh, break this up you know, into the, the questions that they're asked. Who are you? The first thing um, that he, he responds is that I am not the Christ. Um, so he's, he's saying that he's not the Messiah. It's kind of reasonable to, you kind of say, uh, to, to think why they, they did ask that. Looks like my formatting got a little bit messed up in translating this to PowerPoint. Sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, it, at this point, it had been about 400 years since the, the last of the Old Testament prophets had written. You know, there, there were writings but the Jews of that day recognized that the writings in the 
uh, previous 400 years were not the same as what we now would call the canon of the Old Testament scripture. Um, and, and no one regards you know, the, the apocryphal writings of, of, the, of that time as being on the same level of, as, as scripture for the most part. Um, and you know, the, the Jewish people had suffered significantly with uh, you know, kind of occupation you know, by you know, kind of the warring Seleucids and the Ptolemies uh, you know, a couple hundred years prior to this. We'll read about that. In, uh, it's prophesied in Daniel. Uh, and it's described in apocryphal books, you know, First and Second Maccabees. And then they're under Roman occupation. Um, they're expecting God to deliver them. And it's been a, a long time, you know, 400 years might actually, you know, to a Jew, kind of have some significance because that's how long they were enslaved in, in Egypt. Uh, and so there's certainly an expectation that's kind of increasing among the Jewish people that something's going to happen. And so... Uh, Someone preaching in the wilderness would certainly cause a stir. That's, I think, the reason that John drew the attention, the reason that he's asked if he's the Messiah, and, and he denies that. But it's kind of good to have the mindset uh, in our minds as we look at this. So the, the next thing they asked him, uh, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not. The religious leaders do their Old Testaments. They were thinking of Malachi 4.5. This is uh, one of the very last books uh, to be written, and it's the last prophetic writing to be written. Uh, Esther and Nehemiah were probably written after Malachi, but uh, this, this would certainly be the, kind of the last prophetic word. And at the end of it, they're told, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet um, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so there is an expectation, they, they read this correctly, that Elijah would precede the Messiah. And so they were asking him, Are you the uh, the uh, kind of the prophet who would uh, uh, precede the Messiah that's at least comparable to Elijah. And his ministry had a lot in common with Elijah in terms of you know, his, his dress and his asceticism living out in the wilderness. And John answers no. And to be perfectly honest, I'm still scratching my head a little bit as to why. Uh, because, you know, first of all, he he very much kind of fits the role of Elijah that you see prophesied in Malachi 4-5. And I, I think that would be enough to make me scratch my head a little bit, but I scratch my head a little bit more because of Matthew 11, 9 through 10. Uh, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist here uh, when the people went out to the wilderness to see him. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has not arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violent men take it by force. For the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So Jesus says that he's Elijah. The circumstances kind of point to, to him being Elijah. Um, and the, the, there are two answers that I've kind of found in the commentaries. I don't find either of them completely satisfactory, but I'll, I'll provide them to you. One of them is that John the Baptist might not have realized that this prophecy was uh, referring to him. Uh, D.A. Carson points that out. And so that, that certainly is a possibility. The other one is that it, um, John doesn't really want to be drawing attention to himself. He's, yeah, and, and that's very clear in this section overall that he's 
wanting to kind of focus on Christ. He doesn't want to make a big deal out of himself. Uh, he simply wants to be focusing on Christ and maybe, um, you know, trying to get into how he is and isn't Elijah might be more of a distraction. Yes. So you're probably referring to Daniel's 70 weeks, which ended roughly when so, when Jesus was born. They, they, okay. is, that, is that what you're referring to? Or? Yeah, I just, I um, yeah, and I, and Tim could probably answer that better than I could, you know, how, how certain we are that Daniel's 70 weeks is kind of pointing to, to that specific period. But it, it did end roughly the time that Jesus was born. Um, The next thing that they ask is, are you the prophet? And this one might be a little bit less familiar to us. But if we look back in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18, uh, this is the prophecy that they're referring to. This is from uh, Moses. The Lord, will God will, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is, him, uh, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired... Uh, of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or, or see the great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, um, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them, uh, he shall speak to them all that I command him. The, the Jews uh, understood this to be a prophecy that's specific to a, a, a specific prophet, not just a kind of a general prophecy about the prophets were, that were to come. And so that's what they're referring to. Uh, one of the questions in Judaism at the time is, is this person distinct from the Messiah? And a lot of the religious leaders evidently believed that there would also be a prophet that would be distinct from the Messiah that would kind of come alongside him. They didn't necessarily see that this would be the same person as the Messiah. We uh, see this to be part of Christ's office. Uh, a description you'll hear of who Christ is very frequently, especially in Reformed teaching, is that Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And so this is one of his offices. Uh, but that isn't completely clear from the Old Testament. It, uh, it, it, it's possible that um, or at least a lot of people in in, in this time would have considered that the prophet might have actually been a different individual, and that's what they're, they're asking. <clears throat> uh, finally, <clears throat> so they, they, they've asked him you know, three different things. He's kind of denied being any of these. So they say, uh, who are you? Um, what do you say about yourself? And then he says that, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament, and so we need to go to the Old Testament. I... Uh, I know this is going to be a little long, but I do want to show you this in context. And I also kind of want to give you just a little bit of the structure of the, the book of Isaiah. You know, Isaiah is uh, 66 chapters, and it divides very neatly into two parts. The, the first uh, 37 chapters, really, are, are kind of various prophecies that are written um, in the voice of the, the present time when Isaiah lived. Isaiah was a contemporary with... Uh, Hezekiah. Uh, he overlapped with other kings as well, but uh, Uzziah. But <clears throat> so that that's kind of the general period. This is something in the range of a hundred years before the destruction of uh, of Judah. 
and so there's uh, prophecies that are very similar to what you would find in, in the other Old Testament prophets in the first section of the book. And in chapter 40, well, there, there is a short section that's historical that kind of divides the, or is in the middle of this division. But chapter 40, the book completely changes gears. And it's written from the perspective of the exiles returning you know, some, something in the ballpark of 200 years after Isaiah was written, or after Isaiah prophesied. <clears throat> so it, it's kind of written from the perspective of, of several hundred years in, in the future. Uh, and this is how it starts out. So this is the very beginning of you know, this, this prophecy uh, where it, it's kind of changed. And just kind of listen to it. You'll hear lots of messianic overtones in this. You'll, you'll hear, hear quite a bit. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So this is who John says that he is. He's uh, the voice in the desert that's making a way for Jesus Christ. A very consistent with what we, we see John the Baptist des described as, as elsewhere. <clears throat> so the next question that the re religious delegation asks is, why are you baptizing? Again, we need a little bit of context because the Old Testament doesn't really mention baptism overtly at all. Um, you know, there, there are certainly things that kind of prefigure baptism in the Old Testament, but the, uh, the word itself didn't exist. And baptism, by the way, is a transliteration of a Greek term. There just isn't a nice way of uh, translating it. And so you know, occasionally what they'll do is they'll just keep the Greek word and uh, make an English form of it. And that, that's what was done with baptism. <clears throat> uh, this is something that developed in the intertestamental times. If uh, a Gentile wanted to become Jewish, a very important part of kind of taking on the Jewish religion was baptism. With baptism, the idea is that you kind of the unclean Gentile nature would be kind of completely washed off, and they would you emerge from baptism, uh, you're kind of cleansed from their Gentile past, and they would be kind of part of the Jewish nation. So that that's kind of the picture of baptism. John the Baptist comes along, he practices baptism, but he does not follow at, at all what a Jew would expect of baptism. He's not baptizing Gentiles. He's baptizing Jews. And uh, what he's saying is that the, uh, the Jewish people you know, need uh, to repent. They need to be cleansed of their sins as well to be ready for the Messiah. And so this is, you know, um, he's attracting very large crowds. It's causing a significant stir. The religious leaders are kind of coming out and trying to figure out what's going on. <clears throat> Um, the, and when they ask him, um, you know, you know why, then why then are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? It's a legitimate question. You know, he's introducing a brand new practice, or he's at least heavily modifying uh, a, a practice 
in Israel? What gives him the, the authority to do that? If I were to develop you know, uh, something that I, I said had kind of comparable importance to communion but was a different principle, the elders hopefully would ask me, what gives you the authority to do this? Um, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so John's response. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. First of all, uh, an important thing to notice is that John it, it takes every opportunity to, to minimize himself and to point to Christ. That's, that's his function, and he does it wonderfully, uh, both in the Synoptic Gospels and to here. He's continuously pointing to Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll see that even more clearly in several chapters when John you know, says, I must decrease, he must increase. Uh, that's the function of his ministry, is to point to Christ and, and to, to direct people to him. We, we have an expression that it doesn't uh, quite mean the same thing to us as it would mean in uh, you know, the, the first century, the, the, the strap of whose sandals I'm not willing to untie. First of all, think back to the first century. People got around primarily by walking, or uh, people got around by you know, horseback or, or donkey or camel, and that would leave not carbon emissions, but other sorts of uh, you know, environmental issues on the road. And you walked in sandals on those roads. Um, feet would get quite dirty uh, back then, uh, much, much dirtier than, than today. And so you're basically taking care of someone's feet was not a particularly pleasant task back then. Um, there is a rabbinic saying that we, we can kind of look to in, in Jewish writings from the time. I'm just going to read this to you. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple for his teach, teacher accept the loosening of the sandal phone. In other words, you know, if, if you were someone's disciple back then, you needed to be that person's servant. You needed to obey them and, and take care of them to a point. The, the one exception is that you didn't have to untie their sandals. And so what John is doing is he's interacting with that. But if, if he were lower than a disciple, he would you know, kind of stoop to untying the, the sandals of, of Jesus. He's lower than that still. He's not even worthy to do something the disciple is above. Um, so he's, he's making about as strong a statement of how much greater Jesus Christ is than himself here. And knowing the context kind of helps us to see what, what John is really saying there. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and move on to the rest of the chapter. We'll, we'll, uh, <clears throat> or, no, actually, we're, we're still in John the Baptist. I apologize. <clears throat> so there, there's a contrast that we see. Uh, my, my slides might just be a little bit out of order, so ignore the slides for a second. There's, there is a contrast that we see between you know, Jesus' baptism and John's baptism. Um, <clears throat> John, baptized, uh, John baptizes with water, but um, you know, Jesus baptizes with the Spirit. So water, of course, is a good way of... 
cleaning something that's physically dirty. Uh, and so it kind of provides a, a picture of cleaning. But that's all that water can actually do. Baptism doesn't really have any you know, uh, power. It, it's symbolic. It, and you know, be, because uh, you know, God works through it, there, there is a power behind it. But you know, simply the, the, the physical act of, act of baptizing doesn't have, or of washing with water doesn't have uh, kind of power directly. Um, Sin is a spiritual problem. You can't wash it off with water. It's a spiritual problem. And so we need someone that baptizes spiritually, someone that can accomplish what baptism points us to and what baptism is a physical picture of. The next thing that John says is, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's easy to read this and not meditate on it. We've, we've kind of heard this title for Jesus Christ, Lamb of God, many times. But you kind of try to put yourself in the minds of, of first century people who haven't heard this title for Christ and don't necessarily know who Christ is. What, what is it pointing to? And you can find all sorts of references to, to lambs in the Old Testament. You've got the, you know, when um, Moses is told to sa- sacrifice Isaac, he's about to sacrifice Isaac and God or an angel tells him to stop. And then there's a ram, male sheep, that's caught in the, the thicket that he sacrifices instead. That sounds like a very good picture of who Jesus Christ is. There's a number of sacrificial lambs, uh, different types of sacrifices where, where lambs are sacrificed. And each one of them points in, in different ways to who Jesus Christ is. And I th- think the clear answer is that all of them, there's the Passover lamb, but, but all of these lambs are pointing to who Jesus Christ is. And the, the, the object there, you know, the, um, the lamb, you know, each of the lambs that came before Christ would be a lamb. Jesus Christ is the lamb that they pointed to. And I think the the, the uh, actually is quite important in this particular one. So I want to look at the the basics of the, the structure here before we uh, go on further. First of all, John is identified as the one who prepares the way of the Lord. So the, the, the passage does that. And then the next thing that the, the passage does is that John very clearly identifies Jesus as the Messiah, the Lamb of God, of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the point of, of this section is, this is John's testimony about Jesus Christ. I've always thought it was kind of odd that you know, John is identified by Jesus as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, but we have very little from him. You know, none of his, if there were any writings, they, they didn't survive, he didn't perform signs, we only just have kind of snippets you know, of his uh, teaching in the New Testament. So that, you know, d- despite you know, the, um, the role that he's given, we have actually very little from him except pointing to Jesus Christ. Um, on the other hand, you know, if, if you kind of step back and think about that, what greater office could you have than to be the kind of the final person that, that points to Jesus Christ. He's kind of the culmination of the Old Testament prophets, all of whom are pointing to Christ in different ways. And so I think uh, that's all he needs to do uh, to, to occupy that office. Okay, next up, we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. And so we're going to kind of switch gears uh, to, to several disciples and their encounters with Jesus. So I'm going to read this section. Uh, We're going to go to to 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them, and he said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus, or one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from uh, Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward, toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, we've seen John the Baptist. He's an important witness you know, as uh, the only prophet to appear in about a 500-year window at this point when um, the, the Gospel of John was written. If you sort of think back you know, through Jewish history, the you know, nation of Israel kind of fell into sin and God sent prophet after prophet after prophet warning of judgment and destruction. And eventually, you know, the, the, these prophets were not listened to. The people did not repent. The nation fell deeper and deeper into sin. Judgment came in the form of the Babylonian captivity. But they were allowed to return to their land. And um, they did. Judaism, Judaism was practiced there for r roughly this kind of 500-year window. And then in 70 AD, presumably uh, before John was written, um, not necessarily, but but probably. Um, Jerusalem was destroyed a second time uh, by, by the Romans. You know, a judgment kind of every bit as cataclysmic as the Babylonian captivity. You would expect that God would send warnings of this, and he did. Uh, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. That that right there is kind of points to, you know, we, there, there must have been prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus Christ are kind of the, the two that have stood the test of time um, you know, from this particular period. So that's one uh, way that you can kind of point to the authenticity of John the Baptist. That, this would mean quite a bit to a, a Jewish reader that John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus Christ. So it's a very important witness to a significant part of John's audience. Uh, kind of thinking through what we just read through verse uh uh, 51, how does John portray the message about Jesus initially spreading? What's kind of the main way that people find out who Jesus is in the verses that we read? 
Yeah, people talking to each other. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, uh, th there's a phrase that kind of jumps out. It, it, both of the times that it's used, it, it's kind of a very natural thing to come up in conversation. And somehow it really stands out. I haven't quite worked out in my mind why it does. But you know, everyone that kind of preaches through this section almost invariably will call a sermon in here, come and see. Uh, commentators will very often kind of title the, you know, this section of their commentary as come and see. It, it really does clearly stand out somehow. I, I wish I could tell you how. Uh, I'm curious, but it, it, it certainly does. Uh, but you know, we see that once from the lips of Jesus and then what, once from Philip. Um, and you know, in, at one level, it, it, it's a very simple thing. Jesus is simply saying, you know, come and see where I'm studying. It's a, an answer to their question. It doesn't necessarily have to have a deeper meaning, although it, it, it clearly does. But you know, it kind of becomes this invitation to come and see who Jesus Christ is. It's an invitation to us as we're, we're coming into this book. Um, and I, it, I think when you also step back and look and say that this is uh, one of the first things that, is said, uh, that comes from the lips of Jesus in this book, that also tells us that it's important. Um, one thing I, I think just to look at right away with this is that this is a way to, to encourage us in our evangelism. Um, so if you kind of look at how it was used in verse 46, Nathaniel is objecting to the possibility that Jesus would be the Messiah because he's from Nazareth. And you know, Nathaniel may have good reason for that in that he might know the Old Testament well enough to know that the Messiah is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Um, you know, uh, they're you know, certainly not from Galilee. Um, it might be that you know, Nazareth was a kind of a particularly poorly regarded area. It was kind of on the border of Gentile territory, so it probably would have been less Jewish than uh, other areas around it, and so that that might be why Nathaniel has a low regard for for Nazareth. Uh, the, exactly why probably isn't too important, but he was was skeptical, and it, it's very interesting that you know, Philip doesn't respond by kind of trying to uh, you argue or justify. He simply invites. Nathaniel, to come and see Jesus Christ. And I think that's an encouragement to us in evangelism. Um, we you know, tend to, to be nervous you know, about you know, how can I share Christ in a way that you know, is really going to connect with someone. And I think that this is telling us we don't necessarily need to be worth, nervous about that. We can simply invite someone to come and see Jesus Christ for themselves. We don't have to be able to you know, answer every question or defend everything. It's, it's certainly good to be able to do that and to develop those skills but all you need to be able to share Jesus Christ is to be able to say, come and see. I want to just uh, read what J.C. Ryle had to say about this. He just put it so well. Wiser counsel than this could, would, could, would be impossible to conceive. If Philip had reproved Nathaniel's unbelief, he might have driven him back for many a day and given offense. If he had reasoned with him, he might have failed to convince him or might have confirmed him in his doubts. But, by inviting him to prove the matter to himself, he showed the, the entire confidence in the truth that his own assertion and willingness, uh, and his own assertion and willingness to have it tested and proved. As a result, or sorry, and the result shows the wisdom of Philip's words. Nathaniel owed his early acquaintance with Christ to that frank invitation, come and see. That kind of got me thinking. There's uh, a perception 
about Christianity that unfortunately some Christians don't do enough to, to try to shake, that it's a blind faith. And so I, I, I found a couple of quotes um, just to, to kind of show you how Christianity is very frequently regarded. Uh, first is by ben, Benjamin Franklin. The way to see by faith is to shut the eye of reason. Um, <laughs> which, you know, unfortunately is how Christianity is frequently regarded. It's not true. We're, we're, gonna, we're, we're seeing that right, right now in this section. I'll, I'll read another one here by uh, uh, Nietzsche. And I'm, I'm kind of summarizing your parts to make this a little bit more understandable. Uh, if you want the full quote, I'd be happy to give it to you. Christianity, Christianity has even uh, declared doubt to be a sin. One is supposed to be cast into belief without reason by a miracle. <clears throat> um, there, there's more to it, but you can kind of hear what he's saying, that, that you know, Christianity and, and reason are antithetical to each other. But that's not at all what we see here. We see you know, Philip not um, you know, saying you simply need to believe that Jesus is, but he's inviting him to come and see and test. Uh, you know, is Jesus who I'm telling you that he is? Um, and as we go through this gospel, we're going to be confronted with Jesus Christ. He's uh, self-authenticating. The, um, the, the more that you look at Jesus Christ, there's no way that this revelation could not have been from God. So there, there's kind of an odd exchange with Nathaniel. Um, so uh, Jesus says that he saw him under the fig tree, and suddenly Nathaniel uh, uh, believes based on that. We don't really know what's going on there. Uh, and there's there's a number of possibilities. Let me give you one. I think that's reasonable. That I don't know if this is right or not, but it, it works. And so it just kind of having something to picture what might have been going on. But it wouldn't be unusual for a, a Jew to have kind of a place that they would pray and a fig tree would kind of make sense. And so it may have been that Nathaniel was very specifically praying uh, for the Messiah to come. You would certainly expect uh, Jews at that period to be praying for the Messiah to come. And it might be that, um, that, that Jesus' response to him shows that he understood that uh, what that prayer you know, given in, in private was about. That that might be what's going on there. There's a lot of other possibilities. In the end, it doesn't really matter, but it, it was clear to Nathaniel that Jesus had supernatural knowledge of his uh, of something, presumably his prayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but well, there were other things too that would that pointed to Jesus Christ being authentic. John the Baptist saying that this is the Messiah. <laughs> um, you know, that that's something Nathaniel probably would have you know, uh, been aware of. But for Nathaniel, at least, it, it was Jesus saying that he saw him under the fig tree, whatever that was. Uh, and that that's true now. You know, if, if we were to kind of survey people in this room, we'd probably find a wide range of reasons why you came to trust in Jesus Christ as who he claims to be. Probably wouldn't be just one thing. Mm-hmm. 
course we're in a variety of circumstances and we yep. we believe preaching is the power of God mm-hmm. for salvation. Yep. So how can you see anything better than Nathaniel seeing Christ who is the gospel? I mean yeah. God uses means and So no, every every conversion is is supernatural work of the Holy Spirit ultimately. But there's always you know the the natural means on top of that. Yeah. Okay. Well, the last thing I want to um, look at today is kind of the 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 last thing in this section. Uh, so, you know, Jesus tells something about a fig tree to Nathaniel, and you know, that's a relatively small thing. You know, Kind of uh, supernatural knowledge of something uh, where, where Nathaniel was on his own, presumably something personal or private. <clears throat> and and Jesus is saying that you you believed based on a relatively small thing. You're going to see something a lot more significant. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If we know our Old Testaments well, that should jog a memory. It should kind of make us think back to Joseph, or sorry, to Joseph, uh, Jacob. Yeah, Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. <clears throat> so uh, you, you might remember you know, Jacob was kind of the younger of, of two twins, and in his early life, he was a heel grasper. Um, that would be a literal translation of his name, in fact. But uh, in, in Hebrew, grasping someone's heel means to, to lie and swindle. <laughs> um, and you see Jacob doing this constantly. He swindles his brother out of his birthright, and then he... Uh, tricks his father into thinking that he's uh, his, his older brother so that he gets his older brother's uh, blessing when his father dies. And Esau, he, he's, he's done this one too many times. Esau is fed up with him and plans to kill him as soon as his father dies and as soon as the morning is over. And so he flees. He's heading uh, to his uncle Laban, who, who lives uh, some distance away. And you know he's kind of on his own. And he's just beginning to kind of start to trust God for himself. This is kind of a turning point in his life, or the beginning of a, a, a turning point in his life. He's out in the, the wilderness at the time. It would become the city of Bethel. He lies down with a pillow for, or a rock for a pillow, and he sees a vision of, of heaven opened up, and there's a ladder between heaven and earth. Angels are ascending and descending on this ladder. Um, and if you kind of think back to the, the broader context there's a, you know, with Adam's sin in the garden, there's a separation between heaven and earth that's been introduced. Um, and there, there's a, you know, throughout the Old Testament, we're seeing that you know, God is going to do something to repair that. And here, that, that's a ladder. It, uh, it's a ladder that angels are, are coming up and down. But notice what Jesus says. He doesn't talk about the ladder uh, when he's kind of alluding to this section. He's talking about himself. He is that ladder that connects heaven and, and earth. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of people say when you will see heaven open, they, they think that you know, Jesus is saying something about he's going to see his heavenly glory, and so they kind of point to the transfiguration. There's real problems with that. The transfiguration does not come up in John, for one. Um, and so if John were going to allude to the transfiguration, you'd think he would have brought it up later in the gospel. I think that what he's seeing is Jesus' uh, work, not necessarily seeing a, a, 
a manifestation visibly of his glory, but he's seeing a greater manifestation of God's glory in what God accomplished in reconciling heaven and earth. So I think that's probably a good spot to stop. So it's uh, the end of chapter one. We're going to pick up at the beginning of chapter two next Sunday.